Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without police and prisons. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And we are happy to be back rolling on this episode three of season two. We have an amazing conversation coming for you. Uh, but as always, got to bring our partner in decriminalization, our co-pilot, into the conversation. Eva Nagao from Interrupting Criminalization. How are you today? Ow, ow. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here today. You're science metaphor finally took off in this episode oh, you know that was everyone's big. been waiting That's for big it stuff and here happening. we are <laughs> eva who are we talking to today today we have the pleasure of talking to one of the co-founders of ujima medics martine caverell ujima medics are a group of black community organizers activists pastors healthcare professionals mothers brothers sisters fathers cousins and friends of African descent in Chicago who offer training in urban emergency first response, primarily to people who live in or love people who live in communities where shootings often occur. Ujima Medics or U-Medics train people in how to care for shooting victims until an ambulance arrives, including caring for the victim and training in how to handle crowds and how to communicate effectively with police and paramedics. The training now includes lessons on how to treat those suffering from an asthma attack, um, those dealing with seizures. And as we get into the episode, we're going to learn more about what they're up to now. You know, this is a big one for us. This was a real inspiration for Million Experiments, um, and we hope it's going to be a real inspiration for everyone else, too. Always love the home team. Shout out to all the folks at Umedics. And we're really excited to share this conversation with y'all because it has been such an important example and experiment for our community. You can learn more, get in tune, and sign up for a training at umedics.org if you're based here in the Chicago area. You can also follow them at umedicshy on all socials. All right, with that, y'all ready? Let's hop into the lab. Here we go. We are here. We are back. We are hopping in the lab with really one of the most important projects and practices, not only in our national landscape, but in my own personal consciousness and imagination of what is possible in the world that we are trying to create. We got one of the co-founders of Umedics with us here, Martine Caverell. Hey. So Martine, we like to start our conversations in a tradition with our two-part question and it's centered around time. And you can define time however you will, this hour, this day, this season, this lifetime. In this time, Martine, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Mm. The world is worlding. And <laughs> what that means is that I am doing fine. I had a conversation with someone yesterday that led to me, in my imagination, having a picture and speak to my own self 20 years from now. And in that conversation, a 62-year-old Martine said, we made it. Chill. Mm. So I'm chilling. <laughs> That's beautiful. Before we get into the, into the project, I'm curious, what else do we know about, uh, about 62-year-old Martine? What, what, what's, she, what's she up to if everything goes according to, to plan or, or, or the way you'd like it to go? Yeah, well, I tried to ask her a bunch of questions. You know, how is this person? How is that person? Did we end up doing this? Did we end up doing that? And she was like, ah, no, mm -mm, we're not doing all that. Calm down with all those questions. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> Meaning, you made the right decisions. So just do your thing. Mm. You know what you you know the things you need to know. Mm. What a grounded truth to have. That's such a like gift for yourself to be mm -hmm. able to walk with. And so if if we're able to look to the future, which I think we're going to come back and do, I want to swing us back a little bit um, and, and investigate the soil from which Umedics emerged. Um, and the way we do that here is we like to ask the hypothesis of the work. So, you know, when you got your science experiment, you're about to do something, there is a, a you know what a hypothesis is. Mm -hmm. So 
in beginning this project of grassroots skill building up to address the impacts of gun violence, to address the impacts of asthma and environmental hazards. Um, what was the original hypothesis for the work of U- Umedics? And also, we'll talk about the name, but let's get to the hypothesis first. <laughs> I tell you my hypothesis. <gasps> mm-hmm. I would distill it down to where people, where Black people have high quality training and they have confidence based on that training and based on being part of a community and network of support and where they have the motivation, which already exists. We don't, we don't give people the motivation. They bring it with them where they have those three elements. They will respond and they will act in a way where they can help protect the lives and well-being of the people in their surroundings and the people they care about. And these are the people that we actually need to stand in that gap where Black people are failed by the public health and safety systems. And from that foundation, we can build conditions for self-determined health in our communities. So I, I want to flesh out this word health a little bit, because I think one of the ways that that health system fails is by not having a broad enough definition of what that word means. Mm-hmm. And so for y'all, when you say health, what does that mean? One reason I appreciate you asking that question is because when we started, we started with an idea that became the curriculum for our basic gunshot wound first response training. Some people, they have a hard time making a connection between the training work we do related to gunshot first response to the other kinds of work we do, which includes asthma community care and seizure community care and protest defense street medic training. And uh, we're going to be collaborating with uh, another organization to offer a birth emergencies workshop. So they have a hard time drawing a line between those things. Because what? I think because they have a hard time seeing health in you know a 4D kind of way. I'll speak for myself. In order for me to feel healthy, I need many things. You know, I need to feel hydrated. I need to feel alert. I need to have my basic needs met for, you know, food, clothing, and shelter. I need rest. So I need a lot of these things to help my individual body organism survive and and, and do well. I have a hard time feeling healthy completely, however, when I'm surrounded by conditions of uh, other people not having that same health and having that same access. So even if I'm able to be okay within my body, if I live in a society where people I care about, people that are close proximity to me, they're not feeling healthy. They're not having rest. They're not feeling safety. You know, they're not feeling well. They're not having access. It's hard for for the individual to actually be healthy where everyone doesn't have that same access to health. There's a rest that's not just about, you know, ability to sleep and sit down. It's the ability to just like have time and space to think and imagine and engage in pleasure and, you know, have those things that that matters for health, too. And then, of course, if you're going through a crisis, you need access to assistance to get you through that crisis. So health means a lot of things. And so we look at it in a complex way. It makes me think of the Ujima of it all, because for folks who aren't familiar, Umedics is short for Ujima Medics. Ujima is the Swahili word for collective work and responsibility. So, so I bring that up because the thing you articulated so eloquently, I think a lot of people can know consciously or know in their body, right? That like my health is connected to those around me, but m- most of us passively accept the sickness and dysfunction and lack of health um, and just like, you know, suffer through that 
but knowing that it's not right um, for, lot, so, for lots of reasons largely related to money and time i think or, yeah mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and and myself included like it's not a it's not a judgment and so I, I would love to know what prompted that knowing into action or how that knowing came from action of we see crisis around us and now we're going to do something about it yeah yeah I, that, that's a good question and so in order for us so when I say us, I'll, I'll start with me and, and, and Tree. Tree's the, the co-founder. It was us two talking. The reason why we we were even able to have those conversations about what we wanted to do that became Umedics is because of foundations we already had, right? So in order for us to say, oh, we can do this thing, we needed to have seen something that showed us that it was possible. We needed some data from which to draw upon for our hypothesis, right? So we had some data. We came in with some data <laughs> oh, okay. already. Extended metaphor. You do it. You do it. Hey, let's go. Right. <laughs> let's rock. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the what was the data that y'all had coming into this? Yeah. Definitely data from our lived experiences. Um, I don't want to speak for her. I'll try to speak mostly for me. And maybe I'll say a few things that I know were true for her, but we were both organizers. As organizers, that meant that we were spending time in um, something you met, it's called deep community with folks, really trying to understand what motivates people to take collective action. Why do we believe that we can do this? Why do we believe that we can actually take action that shifts power in the direction of people who we don't traditionally think of as having political power. We had to see something. So for me, I took inspiration from a lot of places. Um, Definitely from my family. One thing that I had experienced as a young person, and then I got some more context later, was related to one of my heroes, one of my North Stars, Someone that, like almost every day, I'm like, I wish I could talk to her. My grandmother, my mother's mother, named Thelma, she died when I was pretty young. And by the time I was old enough to know what questions I want to ask her, she wasn't around. So I'll just try to learn what I can from her life and apply that, right? She was kind of a quiet force in her community. She lived in rural Mississippi, the sub, like the southwest part of Mississippi. In that community, she was one of the people who did missionary work, but the missionary work was really like service work, what a lot of the folks would call mutual aid work. That's what she did because, you know, we just had to rely on each other because this was, you know, the segregated Jim Crow. There was a hospital, it was a segregated hospital. So they had the white wing and the black wing. And uh, yeah, it was shit uh, in that uh, black wing. And so she would go around and she would check on the sick in the area, the elderly in the area. And I found out after I'd already went through doula training, started going to births myself, that she was also serving as a postpartum doula, what we call that, but they didn't call it that then. So she would be taking food and medicine and just, you know, giving some attention and care to new families. And my mom was the youngest. So my mom had to go along with her. My mom tells me about having to wash the dirty diapers for these new babies outside. She didn't like that at all. So it was a lot of these traditions that I think a lot of people listening can identify with. These traditions of you know, collective work and responsibility, these these traditions of figuring out how we're going to help take care of each other. Um, my grandfather had a lot of healing knowledge that he had to use to, you know, help his children, help his family because they weren't going to that hospital. And so it was these traditions of having these networks, having knowledge, spreading it that helped us to survive and, you know, have you know, some joy and love and good times and wellness in our lives. So those traditions that were alive in our communities, wherever your families came from, mine in Mississippi, Tree's family has roots in Alabama, 
apart from that, you know, when I got older and learned more about just what was going on in the world, I came into a couple more things. For example, when um, Hurricane Katrina happened in New Orleans, well, it really the whole Gulf Coast, but it really hit New Orleans real bad. This was 2005. I don't know how many listeners were around for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like our, I feel like our younger end was still. They they might have been they might have been babies around that point. I feel okay. like we don't have that many 2007. Oh, okay, okay. I'm not. I'm I don't know all the time. If you were yeah. born after 2005, hit us yeah, up. Hit us, let us up. Know. Yeah, let us yeah. know. This isn't a TikTok. This would be a good, you know, good we, we might have some people who are alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. You know, I don't know. I'll be I'll be like, yeah, you know, World Trade Center. They'll be like, what? <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> so Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans in 2005. City is flooded. You know, people are struggling to survive. And there was a particular news story where it had coverage of like this white couple and they're like wading through like shoulder deep water. They're carrying food that they had just taken from a store that had been busted open. News coverage is like, oh, you know, look at this couple. They went and they found food. And then same scene, I think it was same store, a couple black people. I think a couple of them were kids. Look at these looters. They're looting stores. So that's happening. And then, you know, it was mostly Black people that were seeking relief um, after having to abandon their homes. And then they were being referred to as refugees. And so there was a conversation at the time about how, well, refugees usually refer to people who have to leave their country of origin and seek asylum or relief in another country. But, you know, Black people in New Orleans are being referred to in this language. Now that goes along perfectly with what, you know, some of our elders had been saying, which is that Black people don't have full citizenship in this country. And we haven't, you know, from the beginning, and it didn't really get much closer to citizenship until the Voting Rights Act, right? But we still see these, these acts of reinforcing that Black people are not actually full citizens here. So you have all that happening. So at that time, there was an organization that already been doing grassroots organizing in New Orleans and was led by some people who had ties to Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They were like, yeah, you know, we need people of color to come down to New Orleans and help with the relief and organizing efforts, you know. And so it was because that call came out that me and someone else, very, very near and dear to me, um, went down there. So the hurricane happened in September. We went down there in December. It was being there and seeing, you know, I, I would say their hypothesis is if we stay here and we get through this together and we stay in our homes and we stay in our neighborhoods, we can anchor our neighborhoods so that, you know, Black folks can actually you know, hold on to our culture and our space here. A lot of homes were destroyed completely. And the other reason why they asked for help was because the city had passed some ordinance saying that people who hadn't gutted their homes out by a particular date would have their homes seized. So I um, actually went back there a couple times um, to A, help get the word out, help organize, help canvas, help reach and find people who were still there and get and help to get them networked together. Um, but also to like go in these homes and like get them gutted out. One really important thing is um, the reason I went to New Orleans was because there was a request to go. That's been pretty important to me too, in terms of like, you know, where and how do we, do we organize? I've really tended to show up where people are asking people to show up. Can you talk a little bit more about what that organizing by request makes possible? Or by invitation, I think is really the term. I'm yeah, by invitation. So getting back to my A to twist scientists situation where we're, you know, throwing out hypotheses and, and testing them out. Another hypothesis I think that we operate on is that in order to create alternative competing stronger systems to the current systems of violence and incarceration 
relationships have to be built. Relationships have to be strong. Relationships have to be authentic. And relationships have to be trusting. We need efforts and experiments, alternatives that people can trust, can trust to be there, can trust that we'll, we'll do what they say they're going to do. What the invitation says is that our community has decided that we need supports in these specific ways. And that means that the community that's there, they're still in control in terms of like what happens in their setting, right? If I'm inviting people, I'm deciding who's invited and I'm deciding for what reasons I'm inviting and I'm deciding how those folks will be deployed once they're here. And I'm taking some responsibility as it relates to you know, what happens to them and what happens in my community as it relates to this invitation. For the people who respond, th- there's a relationship being forged there. If I'm showing up a response to a call and I'm showing up at your doorstep, that means I'm giving over my purposes for being here. Um, I'm merging those with your purposes. And so there is some trust that's built with that. If I just show up kind of out of nowhere, what does that mean for the relationships? I was talking to someone about this yesterday. Damn, you had, you had some good conversations yesterday. It was equinox. What can I say about it? <laughs> it was a big day. <laughs> Make your plans carefully next year, Daniel. Mm-hmm. So relationships. Sometimes... The collaboration starts, there's not really much of a relationship there, but there's some foundational values that are shared and you can connect on those, do the collaboration. And from there, the relationship really grows and blossoms, deepens, and um, there's so much more that can be built off of that. One thing I shared yesterday that never fails me is if the relationship precedes the collaboration. You connect on values, you connect on principles, you get to know each other, you build a relationship. And then on that foundation, it comes to collaboration. I think that it can happen in both directions. But in my experience, I've seen better come out of the second scenario where the relationship precedes a collaboration. And the invitation, that relationship bond is stronger, which can lead to stronger institutions, stronger systems, stronger uh, solutions more resilient, better functioning organizations and efforts. Yeah, I I really like that. Like in that notion of intentional relationship building through the method of invitation, like one, being prepared to receive that and prioritize that in terms of when and where we show up, but also the wherewithal or the knowing to make the invitation. And when you when and to who do you offer the space to come and join you in work that's needed in your community, right? Like it is a it is a skill that has to go both ways to be effective. And so I think that's something folks listening could really pull from. And and the thread you just had was so rich that I even just want to pull out a few things to like kind of connect back to the work as it's happening now. One, this notion of there's a value of having data in building new projects um, and that some of the data that you're carrying is from, you know, the, the traditions of our cultural lineages in those traditions, you'll find, you know, so many of the same structural realities that exist today, one, the methods of mutual aid and care, but also I heard you naming your recognition of early health inequity through Jim Crow apartheid fascism. I'm interested in how those vestiges still show up today and like you name the like white wing and the black wing and it may not be as distinct as that right but there is a white wing and a black wing and then also there's a i think class wings (laughs) that Mm -hmm, exist mm -hmm, in our mm -hmm, current mm -hmm. health reality and so i want to take all of all of that rich methodology you just gave us into the practice of how did those relationships and how those data show up within the health inequities that existed here as y'all, you know, came into the world as this powerful movement-based organization. Mm-hmm. What you said reminded me of a couple things. One, so there's this um, book that was made into a movie, Oprah made into a movie. I think the name of the book- I love it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I like that movie. Um, the movie I'm thinking about 
is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. I didn't actually see the movie. I've seen Beloved. I didn't see this movie, but I read the book. Okay. You read the book. You're better than me. Look at me. I read. Look at me reading books. Um, <laughs> um, it was a, a famous book written by a white author. Anybody sound familiar? So Henry Radelax was a black woman, born in Virginia, moved to Baltimore, and died of cervical cancer. Pretty sure she was under the age of 40. And she w- went for treatment at Johns Hopkins Hospital. As part of the treatment, they took cell samples from her cervix and grew them in cultures after she'd already died of cervical cancer. The reason the book is called Immortal Cells is because these cells, you know, cells have a life cycle, right? These cells didn't seem to have the same life cycle as other cells. These cells wouldn't die. Um, so they took these cervical cells they were able to use in maybe by now a million experiments. I don't know. But lots of experiments, and they were able to create treatments for lots of different kinds of conditions. They were able to innovate health practices. They were able to like study how these cells operated in, like, um, I think the International Space Station. All kinds of people use these cells to develop all kinds of health technologies. Again, it was a black woman who died, I think, before the age of forty, of cervical cancer. At the time that I looked it up, and I really don't think it's any different now, this I think was 2012 when I last looked at the data on this, Black women are still most likely to die from cervical cancer in this country after all that. So this is a situation we find ourselves in. It's important for Black people not to sit there in that. I think that that happens sometimes. So I'm a registered nurse. Were you already a registered nurse when you started Umedics? Yeah, thanks for that question. I was not a registered nurse at the time that we created the idea for Umedics, but we didn't actually really start it until I was already a nurse. I went to Johns Hopkins for nursing school. So I lived in Baltimore. After I came back, we actually started like organizing. What I was going to say is that it's, it's important that Black people not sit in the muck of the of the tragedy that we not absorb the idea that some people have still have that there's something wrong with us and that's why we experience health disparities but you know sometimes you need data for that you know for some people the only data they need is self love And for us other folks, they need a little bit more than that to believe that we can get out of this. In addition to some of the things I already named, I was able to see how other people had dealt with these situations. So I'd had an opportunity to go out of the country. I had a chance to visit Chiapas, which is the home of the Zapatista Liberation Communities, Liberated Territories. And I had a chance to bear witness to how they organize their health system based on the autonomy of their people, but also with the help of a lot of international solidarity. Again, invitation, this is what we need, this is what you can contribute, and how they were able to build a system that was trying to combine the best of what people were able to find through international efforts to you know, study health conditions and, and study solutions. Um, put that together with their indigenous cultural knowledge and what was available to them in their immediate environment and that they were to access through their ancestral um, traditions. They were able to combine that and um, support the health of their people in that way. Sheree and I both had an opportunity to meet Dr. Luther Castillo, who I think is currently the Minister of Health for Honduras, but that was a long path. He was educated at the Cuban Medical School and um, went home and together with lots of people, he's just a guy I met. They created a, um, a hospital for the refund of people of Honduras who had been traditionally excluded from a lot of larger Honduran society because of racism. Forces in the Honduran government um, were suspicious of you know, the, their political activities. So they needed to create a health system 
that brought, you know, world-class knowledge, skills, and tools to the people. And again, like integrated it with um, the knowledge, tools, and systems that already existed amongst the people to create the optimal conditions for health for them, right? So many things, uh, but those two, two also stand out as being influential. I would say my interest in emergency preparedness and as a topic in general was due to living in uh, New York City in September 2001. I would take too much of the time talking about that, but living there was very influential on me, you know, being interested in emergency preparedness. And then, you know, like I said, we were organizers. We we're both in this organization called RISA for short, Rising and Solidarity with Haiti. We came together after the earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti happened in 2010. And what we were doing, we were trying to organize funding for grassroots Haitian or Haitian-American-led organizations because American Red Cross and Clinton Foundation, some of these big organizations um, were sucking up a lot of money and resources in like using nonprofit charity infrastructure to really control Haitian politics. We wanted to talk about some accountability related to that, but also educate people about the importance of Haiti for, you know, Black people, anybody interested in freedom anywhere in the African diaspora. So we, we were doing that work and then just living our lives and being in Chicago. Again, I think the reason we started with gunshots is because I had an opportunity to learn first aid through the Outdoor Leadership Skills Project and was being mentored by um, a veteran uh, paramedic. And so I was learning some of these skills and it was important to me to share some of these skills with people that I cared about. So I actually remember going to this protest against American Red Cross. Another person who was there at the protest was Damian Turner. And he was organizing with uh, STOP, which means, um, which stands for Southside Together Organizer for Power, and an organization that he helped to found called FLY, which means Fearless Leading by the Youth. That was the last time I saw him alive, was at this Red Cross protest. I turn around, and next thing I hear was that he'd been shot in the back a few blocks away from University of Chicago Medical Center, and that he had died in an ambulance on the way to, I think it was Northwestern, which for people who were not in Chicago is on the in, in complete other side of town. University of Chicago Medical Center is a very well-known medical school and is sitting there in the middle of the South Side. But this person who was shot, 17 years old, could not go to get care there because they didn't have the type of trauma center necessary to treat him, what if someone had been there who knew how to provide first aid to this kind of injury? I don't know if that could have saved his life or not. We never know. But it could have given him an fighting chance. But also, back to the hypotheses, what is the effect on witnesses to an act of violence when that act of violence is met with an act of love and power and what impact can that have on a community? And so that's when we start talking about, okay, we, we really need to like um, develop a way to spread these skills to our people. One of our founding principles, humanics is quality and integrity. So I was like, let me go, to, I'm gonna go to nursing school real quick. Let me make sure we know what we're talking about. So I do that and I come back. Let me just, let me just get, uh, <laughs> let me just get trained in how to save people's lives real quick. Just yeah. give me a second, I'll be right but back. But honestly, like I was already, I was already in, uh, enrolled. I mean, people was getting shot. People was getting stabbed. People was getting limbs amputated because of diabetes. People were dying of asthma. People were getting HIV. People were um, struggling with um, their mental wellness. All these things were already happening. So we were already in this. Yeah, it was just, it was just a lot going on. Like y'all call this one million experiments, right? There's all kinds of things that people can do related to um, shifting power and transforming conditions. The conversation for me and Tree was, what is it that, the two of us and the people we know with the skills that we know and have, 
what can we do? And what if we don't do it will not happen? You know, we got together and we said, okay, let's, let's do this. I hosted the first workshop in my living room with some friends and family. We learned together and then we said, okay, let's figure out how to actually like take this out to the public. We started just asking people like, hey, would you be interested in learning this? Would you be interested in learning this? And finally, um, Ferguson happens. You know, Mike Brown, rest in peace, rest in power. And um, there's a lot of energy. And so we were contacted by some folks who were connected to We Charge Genocide here. They were like, yeah, we're going to be at the Freedom School. We're going to do basically a cop watch workshop. Can y'all come through and also train on gunshot wound first response? We're like, yes, we can. We didn't have a name for the organization. We didn't have any of those things. We were like, well, this is what we know. We got together with a couple other people who were like, all right, let's let's do this. Let's do this. Um, so we came up with a logo, name, founded principles, started planning a train-to-trainer, met these sisters from Oakland who were doing very similar works. So we started talking to them and just finding, finding that community, finding people who were like, yeah, we want to join and we want to help. And so we ended up officially launching in like April 2015. We based the workshop, this gunshot wound response workshop, on the idea that you might not have any money to buy all these fancy supplies. You might not know what a tourniquet is, but there's stuff that you might have in your wallet, in your pocket, in your diaper bag, in your backpack, in your purse that you can actually use to help save someone's life. But the most important thing you have is, you know, what's in your head and your heart. We're going to base the training around that. Yeah, like I said, we was meeting people's houses. We was seeing what we had around the house. We got some taxi pads. Let's train on this. Yeah, like fast forward to like 2019. At that point, I think we had trained like like 1,200 people, all completely volunteer, living rooms and backyards and doing it like that. Then 2020 hits and... We pivoted because one, we wanted to bring some workshops online. And uh, that's also when we started doing our protest defense training series. Until that point, we were pretty specific about community bystander training. A lot of the street medic collectives in North America um, tend to be focused on like direct action, sending street medics to the rally, to the sit in, to the occupation, um, hunger strikes, stuff like that. We said, well, that's not really what we're training people on. We just did it as like uh, part of street medic groups that were more focused on that. But when 2020 hit, we realized, okay, we really need a black focused street medic training. And we couldn't figure out where there was one. So, um, um, you medics developed a training and um, trained some folks up. It was hard. <laughs> I was just say that it was hard, and I was tired, y'all. But um, but it was good. So, one thank you for for showing how this work has evolved. And I think one of the things that is a takeaway for me from hearing all that is similar to this idea of invitation so much of what what you just shared evolved related to to the need and the space that there was no one to fill right like that was the question you named mm-hmm. is what can we do that if we don't do it we don't know who would be doing that so that seems like a really good question um you know for people in, with whatever skills they're bringing to the table and i think you're naming it right like the people who are doing the work are the ones that are closest to solution And so I get really frustrated with the macro conversation around gun violence and how that conversation is always propagandized or theorized towards investment into police and incarceration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so I want to tell you a little story. Let me just throw one little thing about the cops, right? And I hate to do it, but if it, 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 it's burning in me. So in 2020, you're naming obviously this need for for black street medics. For folks who don't know, I don't like, you know, over talking about the story, but I was arrested and harmed in 
the you know the beginnings of uh, uprising um in a significant way and i spent a lot of time in the back of police station it was a room of like 90 percent black cops who were the ones that were just brutalizing us uh but for some reason they were like they had this burning desire to prove to me that they were good guys or good people while they were being assholes to me it was a really bizarre experience but one story that an officer told which resonated because for years I've been hearing about people being shot, whether it's like somebody connected to like the drill music scene or just somebody, you know, who's thought of to be connected to the streets and cops standing over them, watching them die or saying really brutal, vulgar things. That is something that like I've heard a lot growing up. Um, And so what this officer was trying to prove to me is I'm a good guy because it's not in my job to do anything when someone gets shot, but I took a first aid training and I bring a tourniquet and I haven't sometimes like responded and done first aid work on the scene. So you should not think what you think about police. And in me hearing that, it's like, yeah, sure. You can have had a conscious in a moment, but what you just revealed to me is your job is to not to respond to gunshot. <laughs> like that is within your discretion and y'all can choose and choose all the time to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And so in like saying that personal anecdote or that story and like how clear that was to me for you as someone who has trained literally a thousand people <laughs> into respond to this and now have more data of what really happens on the ground for folks who are concerned about gun violence from a eumetics abolitionist facing lens. How do you think about how we should approach or understand how to build solutions? That's a big question. And no, so thank you don't have you to have it question. all. We get that question in workshops sometimes. We cover lots of things, but we recognize that the actual hands-on first aid skills aren't the only kind of skill you need to respond to that kind of emergency in our neighborhoods, or even if it's not in our neighborhoods, if there's a, a, a Black person involved, if there's a Brown or Indigenous person involved even, like it, it changes the situation. So in addition to first aid actual skills, you also need skills related to how to deal with the police when they come and also how to deal with the 911 system. Often in the police part of the workshop, we get the question, well, shouldn't we advocate for police to have to provide first aid? Our response is, A, that's not their job. B, it shouldn't be. Like we shouldn't rely on them to do that, we're training community bystanders because community bystanders will be better at it than police because police, you know, I have, and a lot of us in the organization have a different viewpoint understanding about the role of police and communities than maybe some other folks. Police, it's not their job to actually protect anybody. I'm going to say that again, person listening. It is not the police's job to protect you. I'm not saying this from like some kind of revolutionary Marxist person. No, that's what the law says. Try to sue a police department for not protecting you once you wasted your money. It is not their job or role to protect individual people. And if they won't protect white people, you think they're going to protect us? We protect us and we need skills in order to do that more effectively because we know that we cannot rely on them. They might decide every once in a while that they're going to help, but A, it's the best kind of help, but a lot of them don't have first aid training. And even if they did, could you actually rely on them to do it in the best way, even if you made it their job? Our hypothesis is no, you cannot. Trained, community, motivated, caring bystanders will do much better at helping to extend the chance that someone's going to survive after that serious injury. Police are trying to control a crime scene. Police have served as barriers to community bystanders even wanting to help. We can go back to 2015. We don't even have to talk about Chicago. There's some things I can say about Chicago, but a public story we all know about is related to what happened to Michael Brown. He didn't die right away. And they had him out in the middle of the street and they wouldn't let anybody go over there because it would disrupt the crime scene. 
I was personally in a situation where I was at a funeral, some people who didn't rock with the person that we were there to mourn came and shot up the damn funeral. In the process of that, um, one of the young men was hit. So I provided first aid to this young man. And so when the police came, one of the police officers actually did come over to help. But I, I was already there and already kind of got a situation under control. Again, you need trained bystanders. So that's one situation. Recently, uh, one of our meetings, our membership meetings, we looked at the um, Interrupting Criminalizations document, uh, Beyond Do No Harm. And we looked at the principles and looked at the, um, like the study guide and the questions. And we had a conversation just with, there weren't a lot of us. We're not a big organization. Everybody shared some personal experience with police being a barrier to someone accessing care, either after being shot, after being seriously wounded, or going through a mental health crisis. So we can't just go off of anecdotes if we're trying to be scientific about this. We have to zoom out and look at the whole landscape and see what the, what the trend is. And the trend is that they serve as barriers. It's a nice news story. Um, and it's nice when any individual person steps up to help someone in an emergency. But you have to look at the whole landscape and not, and that, that anecdote doesn't tell the full story. If we're trying to solve some like big problems, right, we have to actually look and see what the scope of the problem really is. And the scope of the problem tells us that we have police serving as barriers. We also have to look and really examine what is their role in communities and what is the role of people in the community. Like, what do we actually need in order to feel safe in the communities? What do we need in the community for people to be proud of being there, want to stay there, want to be embedded there, want to believe in their community? And that goes completely beyond the role of a police officer. And so we have to build that. And that's hard work. And it's, um, it, it, it's lengthy and it's not done in isolation. You know, we need a million experiments because we can rely upon the fact that there's some pieces that are being picked up by others, right? There's some things that Let Us Breathe is doing that we don't have to do. Let's Breathe is doing that. Look at them. We, we can rely upon the fact that we're part of a network, a community, but there's enough of us doing different things in our different ways finding points of collaboration and finding points of unity and working toward the same goals. I mean, situations where we can focus in and um, figure out like, okay, what do we need to build? How do we build it in order to create actual safety in our communities? Yeah. It brings me back to something that you said in y'all's origin story of like, what are the skills we have that if we don't do, there won't be another person to do. And if, there's this wider movement of people doing that for the skills that they bring, then, you know, the question of capacity becomes a little bit less important or this like version of abundance that feels a little bit less like a wing and a prayer. You know what I mean? Like who the we and what we can bring expands the more people who participate. And so like you, Martine, doesn't have to do everything. You can do the thing that you are driven to do, called to do, and that the skill that you want to contribute to movement. And that that's a more reasonable ask of someone if we want them to participate than, hey, solve all the problems or do fill all the roles. It's what is the thing you do and how can that contribute to liberation movement? I think with that, I want to move toward wrapping up, you know, part of the our our tenuous scientific method, which thank you for for rocking with. I know we we have our own skepticism about it, but um, (laughs) it, it ends with conclusions. And so I'm wondering for you. Obviously, the work will keep evolving, but this many years in, what are some of the conclusions you've come to about what the work of eumetics uh, makes possible in building safety for in a world without policing and prisons? Ooh. So I started earlier talking about me in 20 years. Sometimes it's hard for me to envision what could happen, be real in the next five years. There's a lot happening in the country right now that makes things tenuous and makes me wonder about the future. One thing that helps me feel more secure is the knowledge that I'm loved and cared about by a lot of people 
but also people that know stuff. <laughs> you know, I got a nice little squad going. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, that's great. That's real. That is, that is a privilege. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so real. <laughs> knowledgeable care the care is one thing but some informed mm-hmm. care mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah know what you do know what you're talking about that's um I, i'm cared for by a lot of people who know what they're talking about know what they know what they're doing that's the main thing I, I think provides me with my sense of security is knowing that i have my little squad of support but i really think everybody should have that everybody needs that and I think it's through work like what we're doing that we're able to actually help strengthen your network, the people you actually rely on for security and enable you to walk through the world with that sense of safety, with that sense of security, with that confidence and even pride. And so I think that's one thing that we're contributing to our city, to our region. And that's one thing that motivates me a lot. I don't always know when or how people are putting their skills to use, um, particularly the first aid skills. Sometimes we don't find out about it until years later. Somebody's like, yeah, um, I came to your workshop and then this happened and I did this, this, and this. We're like, what? They're like, yeah. So we find out about it like that sometimes. One person we're in touch with now who's interested in joining the organization, we found out about him on NPR. Yeah, he went on NPR and said, yeah, I went to this one of our uh, workshops and ended up using his skills and was on the radio talking about it. It's like, what? So that was really, really dope. But shoot, I prefer that people don't have to use those skills. If they use the skills all the time, that means they're always in a situation where, you know, it's, it's kind of dangerous. You know, the main skills or lessons from the workshops that we hope were deployed relate to how we participate in our communities and the role we take on, what we're prepared to do and how that lifts us all up. That's, that's more what it is. It also feels like the kinship networks, the community relationships, the, the infrastructure and skills that are empowering also feel like ways to prevent the conflicts, right? Like the more people that are engaged in this type of work, the more people that have these type of skills, the more people that understand the consequences and are in community with folks that are prepared to respond. I believe, you know, for lack of a better word, like, no, I'm not going to say trickle down. That's why I was going to make a joke, but I believe that that will pollinate the whole community in, in ways that may not feel direct. I've always felt like the work of eumetics long-term is actually the most effective model I know of what will eventually prevent the conflicts that lead to gun violence. I don't know if y'all feel that's a lot to claim and that's like a lot of pressure to hold, but I, I see and receive that. And thank you for you know the dedication, the commitment, the intentionality, the reverence of our legacies and lineages and histories and that future-mindedness of how you've taken on this collective work and responsibility um, and what you and Tree and y'all's families have built for so many communities and families directly, but also for our imagination. It really is a immeasurable service and resource you have offered to us. That means a lot, Damon. Like it, I know I sound calm saying that, but I just want you to feel that, like how much it means to hear that. I agree. One thing that promotes the you know, horizontal violence you see in the community is the lack of real safety and security, the lack of the safety net, the lack of the care net that we're trying to reconstruct through the work that we're doing in the organization. And when they're feeling held with that, that creates conditions where conflicts aren't escalating to the point where people are dying, where people aren't fighting over resources, fighting for survival to the point where people are dying. So I completely agree with that. that that's beautiful. And, and with that said, in order to get more people in it, they got to know how to, how to find you. How can folks find you and the work of eumetics in the ways that you would like to be found? Sure. So one big way you can find eumetics is by a tweak on the word Ujima. So if you go to your Kwanzaa celebrations, it's going to be spelled U-J-I-M-A. But if you want to find us, 
you're going to spell it U-J-I-M-A-A. So two ways. That's how you find us. Ujima Medics, double the A. And you find us specifically. We charged so, up, baby, double A. <laughs> yes. Another good way to find us on social media is to use Umedics Shy. U-M-E-D-I-C-S. C-H-I. That's how you find us on Facebook. That's how you find us on Instagram. And you can always email us, admin at umedics.org. Also, like, if you've been to a workshop and, like, you got some feedback or, like, you use a skill later, we would love to talk to you. Can you reach out to us? We want to talk to you. We're going to get, like, a like a long-time medic, first-time caller type situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time, your brilliance, your dedication, everything you do. Yeah, no, it, it's been such a joy to to learn from you today. This has been this a really wonderful hour and a half. I really want to tell you all, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the way that you do it. People do podcasts, but it's the way you do it. So thank you for doing it and the way that you do it and putting the thought and care into your work. It shows. Um, I love it. And never change. Ah, that means a lot. Mm-hmm. My, my 60-year-old self is thanking your 60-year-old self. We are we gonna, oh. we gonna move with that ease. Okay, we're gonna meet under a tree. That's where we would meet under a tree. We're gonna go under a tree, we're gonna uh-huh. sit down. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's gonna be nice. <laughs> Thank you again to Martine and so much love to all the folks at, at Umedics, especially shout out co-founder Big Tree, part of our family. Um, all right, it's time to do it. Let's hop into the peer review. You know what that means. It's time to invite back in our partner in decriminalization. Eva, you still with us? Hey, hey, I still got my lab coat on. Hoping I don't offend all my peers. <laughs> <laughs> so this was peak experiment metaphor. We really got deep in the data and the methodology. What were some of the things you took out? That was such a rich conversation. I think, you know, one of the things I'm really sitting with is Martine talking about how Umedics founders, how folks in the community needed to have seen something that showed us it was possible. And that's the point of 1 million experiments. These things are possible. Uh, Martine did them. She came from a long legacy and lineage of people doing Um, And we hope that seeing how it's done helps people create their own blueprints, their own legacies, their own actions. Um, She said something that, that I really, I wrote down that I really liked that, you know, why do we believe that we can do that? What that says to me is Martine isn't waiting for, for permission for anyone. It's we do it because we have to do it. We protect us because we need the skills to protect us. Like that's what and the questions we're always after, right? That's the question Martine was was giving us some answers for is what motivates people to take collective action. You know, so this is one example of a motivation and I hope that people can take that example and map it onto their own lives and their own experiences and find that factor that's going to drive them to take that first step, to join up, to circle up, to get together, to get in the streets, to get shit done. Yeah, I love that point which we're always coming back to of what moves people into action. That's kind of like a central question through this whole show. And one of the things that she mentioned that we haven't gotten into is this idea of invitation, mm-hmm. um, which I think for people getting started, there's often, or I'll just speak in my own experience and in my own observation, this like dilemma of like, oh no, am I putting my energy into the right place? Is this where I should be? Is this what I should be doing? Who do I ask for that kind of like, feedback, accountability, relationship building so that I know where I'm putting my energy is something that's useful and helpful. And so the idea of invitation, both on the part of the inviter and the invitee being something that people should be thoughtful about and, and you know, what kind of communication and relationship and invitation opens up. I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's one of the central conceits of this, of what we hope the show is, is an invitation into not only these experiments that we're documenting, but into this practice of experimenting. Um, she gave us a lot of background. I love the like the the 
the foundations and the traditions and the lineages that she named and pulled forward into like what made this work possible. And one of the things that she said that was, I think, really profound is this notion of her and Big Tree having had data from showing up and from practicing in other spaces that equipped them to then respond in this way, right? And so like, for me as somebody who was a part of something created at like 21, coming right out of school and like, you know, sometimes as a, as a critique, like it's very intertwined with like my sense of self and identity and like something you don't want to let go. But we learn that like, we have to be able to plug in and exit. We have to be able to sunset things. So, that, so what I take from that is every practice or every experiment you participate in doesn't then have to be your lifelong work. Some of it is to gain the skills, gain the data to be able to respond 10 years down the lines when you are equipped or when you did go and get that training or you did go and get that nursing degree that you know how to use it because of the the work that you did. And so I love that lineage. I mean, even going back to, to 9-11, but um, and Katrina for that. And, Kat- too, and, both and that's what I was going to emphasize. I, I want to reference, if you go in the Erico archives, we talked to Kianga Taylor. And for many of us, we think of either Ferguson and Mike Brown or Trayvon as like the the big bang of our current movement universe. Um, and Kianga, in a way that I'd never heard before, expanded that horizon back to Katrina. And I think Martine really exemplified the way in which like Black liberatory movement was built out of responding and surviving that ecological disaster. That really got me thinking about, you know, this push and pull between calls for action and big spaces. I think, you know, Stop Cop City, as we sit here right now, weighs heavily on my mind. And I see is in touch with so many organizers across the United States and, you know, has been a part, you know, of the before, the middle, and the after when when the scene explodes, when the nation takes a look at a certain spot and the pressure is on, the spotlight is on, and opportunities are developing. And, you know, I sit with that too, Dame. And like I'm thinking about the places and people in my life that have led me to where I am and how I showed up and what I took and what I gave. Um, and I really thought about that when, when Martine was talking about. Um, the Zapatistas, because I spent quite a bit of time with them. Um, You're so right cool. After my college years and in my college years. <laughs> every episode, every month, we're just learning something new about you. That's so cool. <laughs> so in the mid 90s, I went to the moon. It was pretty nice. <laughs> and then I came back. <laughs> it was radical and it was great. And I also didn't come back and create Umedics, you know, like I don't <laughs> like, like I, I need to sit back and think about what that experience gave me um, and what I gave back because of that experience, because it's really inspirational to hear um, about how Martine has pushed that forward in a collective way, has taken individual experience and skills and pushed that forward so that other people can get trained up in those skills. And I just, I love that. And I want to push forward too. And and I'm sitting right here feeling like I need to fly to Chicago and get some skills with Martine because <laughs> she's doing it right. Yeah. I had the same thought. I was like, oh damn, I really... I really got to learn how to do these things. Like everyone should know how to do these things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and definitely like the basic day-to-day survival skills that we all can expand within people. And like the fact that that's not even a part of our like education framework as like a given of like, how do we respond yeah, to like the emergency? You're a boy scout. Basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so one, that's just a, a skill that is accessible and transferable and, and highly needed, but I also liked the fact that in her story, she revealed that it's not just getting the the basic one-on-one. She herself dedicated the dialectic of going and engaging the institutions that maybe are not designed for liberation, but do offer information that our community doesn't often have access to. And so the like going into the institution and liberating some of those knowledges and some of those practices, you know, most people just be like, oh, I'm going to do my mutual aid version of the thing, which we want people to do. Uh, but just taking out the the unique value in Martine's experience of being able to dedicate herself in a more structured way to like increase the capacity of the organization. Yeah. One person going through that training led to thousands of people getting a level of training that they wouldn't have had otherwise. I, I, I really appreciated the the point that we ended at. And like, I want to acknowledge their work on asthma and also just want to honor let us breathe collective lost someone to asthma. So I just want to honor the legacy of Miss Aaron Cooper. Um, you know, 
epilepsy and seizures. My grandmother, my whole life had seizures. So I know the seriousness of that, but so much of their work is centered around gun violence and where we were able to get in that like real hypothesis at the end was so important, I think for abolitionist movement, uh, because that's the question that, you know, especially in a space like Chicago where there's the reality and then also the like propaganda and imagination of gun violence that really is a barrier and obstacle for people imagining new, new ways of living and new freedoms beyond policing. Um, and usually the, the, the things we rely on are, you know, more laws, more incarceration, or some type of lobbying against the production of weapons and guns, which could also potentially be valuable work. Um, or these like indirect things of we build the relationship, we create political power, we create education, we offer food, we offer housing, which obviously will address conflict. But the learning here of like, no, preparing ourselves to respond to it will not only save the lives of people who are directly impacted, that that is the seed of how we actually intervene and, and address gun violence. And so we have these very like masculine, patriarchal like notions of street interruption that also has its value. And I don't want to like completely diminish, uh, but just this approach of like a healthcare responsive skill building towards the reality of the harm is actually how we're going to stop gun violence. And I don't think anyone else is really articulating that as, as a path for it, a solution as clearly as what Umedics work embodies. So thank you again, Martin, for, and everybody at Umedics for all those learnings. Um, one, if folks want to learn some more about some of the things we discussed, particularly the effort around the trauma center or more stories about Umedics, you can go in the Ergo archives. You can check out episode 25 with V, for, uh, formerly from Fly. Also, Tweak G is episode 45. And co-founder Amika Bigtree Tandaji is episode 78. We also invite you, see what I did there, to check out all of the other episodes of One Million Experiments, both in our first and second season. Check out the amazing One Million Experiments website at millionexperiments.com. There's all kinds of cool stuff going on over there. Eva, where else would you like to invite people to plug in? I'd love for you to stop on by the gram and check out Million Experiments on IG. You can also find Interrupting Criminalization at interruptingcriminalization.com or at interruptcrim on all the socials. We're at Ergo Radio. You can find our other pod, Ergo, at AIRGO, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back next month with another experiment in building safety toward a world without policing and prisons. Much love to the people. Peace.